Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. That's my third show in a row that I'm hosting. Hopefully you're not too sick of me yet. Um, You know, shout out, don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. I also want to give a special shout out to my dad who doesn't listen to the show, to the best of my knowledge, but it's his 85th, 83rd birthday today. Sorry, dad. Um, He's a former middle school English teacher. And so I wanted to say happy birthday to him. Um, On today's show, we're going to be talking about how to decode your financial aid award. You think it will be simple, but it actually isn't always. So we have some tips. And then um, we're going to be talking to one of my colleagues here at College Coach who loves visiting colleges. And she's going to tell us a little more about why and what she makes it a point to do when she is on college campuses. But before we get to all of that, I am super excited to welcome Dr. Susie Bartlett, who's a senior veterinarian at the Wildlife Conservation Society, here to the show today. Hi, hi, Dr. Bartlett or Susie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Susie will do, yes. Susie, all right, great. Well, thanks so much for joining the show today. We like to talk to families and students about um, careers that they may be interested in, and, and it's always interesting to hear how someone arrives at the end, which is where you're not at the end, of course, but you are a vet. And um, so we're always interested in the path that got you there. Um, So maybe why don't we start with tell us a little bit about your current job, because it's certainly not like you are taking care of dogs and cats that we all have in our home. Yes. Yep. So uh, I am a zoo veterinarian, and I've been here at the, the Wildlife Conservation Society, um, which is a sort of conglomerate of a number of zoos, the Bronx Zoo, Queen Zoo, Prospect Park Zoo, Central Park Zoo, as well as the New York Aquarium. So I've been here for about uh, six and a half years, and um, I take care of any animal that happens to need assistance on any particular day. Um, so that can be anything from a frog that's the size of my thumbnail to, you know, elephants and giraffe and lions and, and all of that. So uh, it's a very interesting, fun, challenging, unpredictable job. I can't even imagine it truly. So um yeah, I, I I wouldn't even know how you take care of a frog that's the size of your <laughs> thumbnail. Obviously, I'm not a vet, so but you do, and that's the cool part. Um, so I'm I'm of course really interested in your path there. But my first question really is, you know, did you always know you wanted to be a vet? We certainly talk to students who that's the case, or if not, when did that occur to you? That's something you might want to do. So um, I always knew I was fascinated by animals, particularly elephants. I was all into having elephant books and stuffed animals and all of that kind of thing. Um, But I didn't really think about becoming a a veterinarian until much later, until I was in college, actually, um, because I was one of those squeamish kids. So, you know, if I saw roadkill as we drove past, I'd be really upset by that. Or my sister actually thought she was going to be the veterinarian because she liked to go hunting and, you know, would 
dissect animals and things when she got home. And I would have to go hide in another room because I didn't want to see any of that. So um, it, it, but I always loved sciences and math and I loved animals. So um, right. Not until I got into college did I finally start to say, okay, I, I think I should, I should try to pursue this because it really did fascinate me, but it took a bit to get over that squeamishness. How, how did you get over it? Was it just a, an academic desire and a real passion behind it all that you kind of were just like, I'm going to have to move past it. Or I'm curious about that piece. Cause uh, that's an issue for me for sure. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yes, I had to go about it very deliberately. So I would watch, um, like educational channels on, on TV where they would, you know, maybe be showing, you know, uh, surgeries or, you know, some hint of that. And I would slowly build up my tolerance. I would watch for as long as I could, and then I would have to turn it off or or turn away. Um, And then, you know, eventually I I started uh, working in a small animal vet clinic and and started observing and, and, and doing some shadowing as well. And there were times when I would go in and start to see a surgery and then say, I got to step out, you know, I'm going to hit the floor. So it, it took a while. Um, but eventually I, I did, I did get over it. So here I yeah. am. I, I can do pretty much anything. now. <laughs> I, I mean, it is kind of amazing though, how it was such a driving interest for you that you were willing to put yourself through that because I would say most people would not. Um, but it was probably good that it was that driving of an interest because your road to becoming a vet was not a short one at all, right? So you mentioned that you kind of developed that interest in college. Um, When, you know, were you ready to go to vet school when you graduated? Tell us a little bit more about that piece of it. Yeah, so um, my... My major was actually English. I was an English major. Me too. Um, but all right. <laughs> uh, like your dad, the English teacher, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, I was a pre-medicine sort of concentration and a chemistry minor. Um, so I had a lot of bases covered. Um, but even though I had had all of these science courses, depending on which vet school you go to, there's different requirements. Um, so I realized that to apply to a lot of them, I needed to have uh, genetics and biochemistry and all this kind of thing. So even after I graduated college, it took me another year or two to get uh, the required classes that I would need to even apply to vet school. Got it. So did you do those while you were doing some vet-related work, or did you do a PG or post-grad or post-bac? That's the word I'm looking for, program? Yeah. You know, I was able to um, continue working at my undergraduate college um, in in the admissions department, actually. So I had part-time at that college, and then I did part-time with that small animal clinic that I was uh, talking about and also took classes. So I pieced a lot of stuff together then. Oh, sounds very cool and very like a really smart way to go about it. Um, All right. So you graduate, you do these extra classes. Now tell us, take us down the road that led to where you're at now. Yeah. So getting into vet school is not easy. um, And I think it's only become harder, certainly since I went through it many years ago now. Um, But I did not get in on the first time, nor even the second time. I think it really was the third time that was a charm. So um, academically, I was fine. um, But a lot of vet schools, they want to make sure you know what you're getting into. And so they want you to have uh, a lot of hours working with animals um, in order to get in. And and they want a, a variety of animals. So I always knew my dad actually worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service. So I always had an interest in wildlife. And so 
I had uh, done some uh, work during my summers in college to, to do some work with wildlife. But when I applied, they said, well, you don't have any small animal you know, experience. Mm-hmm. You don't have any large animal experience. And so um, I, I did have to spend some time um, getting additional hours working with animals to even be able to um, sort of qualify for for the vet school admissions. So I'm curious, um, you said they they told you. So did, you, did they offer that up when they turned you down or did you contact them? How did you find out what you were missing? Yeah, um, I think I did contact the colleges. It wasn't something that was in my deny letter, you know, like here's what right. I need to do. Yeah, I think I did have to um, contact them afterwards. And, you know, for those that are really are interested in pursuing vet school, there is actually... Uh, publication. I don't know if it comes out yearly, maybe every couple of years, but it does summarize uh, all of the vet school requirements. Um, and so you can say, okay, I'm interested in going to Guelph, you know, Canada for vet school. What do they require? And it, and it gives you that breakdown. So that is a good resource. No, that sounds like a great resource. Okay. So you finally get into vet school. <clears throat> Um, and you actually you head to my alma mater, Cornell University, and you graduate from Cornell. Um, now you're a vet. No? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. So technically, um, once you graduate from vet school, you can go out and set up your own practice if you want and, and go on about your business. Um, but, uh, you know, being a zoo veterinarian is a highly specialized uh, uh, profession, certainly. And in vet school, again, depending on which vet school they go to, you may you may get some training in exotic pets and wildlife and zoo animal medicine. You may get absolutely zero. Um, mm-hmm. Cornell was great in that they did have a fair number of classes that I could take. Um, so compared to maybe the average vet student, I was pretty well trained in, in zoo medicine. Um, but I still had a lot of training uh, to go. So mm-hmm. when I graduated uh, from vet school, there was actually a position open at Cornell, a postdoctorate position that was working with uh, fish. And it was um, specifically helping to uncover why there might be a fish, a wild fish die off um, in New York state. And so mm-hmm. when there were die offs, the fish would get sent to us and we would try to uh, help the government really understand the cause of the die-off. So I did that for a year, which was really uh, interesting and good work, but it, it was sort of odd. You know, it was almost like you're hoping for fish to die in order to have something interesting to do. <laughs> yeah. So it was a little, a little, a little confusing. So I did that for one year and then I um, applied for and got an internship working just with wildlife, um, living wildlife. Uh, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a nice change at uh, Tufts College of Vet Medicine. Uh, so I did that for one year. I then went on to do a three-year residency back at Cornell, uh, where I worked with exotic pets and wildlife and zoo. We would help take care of the zoo in Syracuse, New York. Got it. So I did that for three years. And then I could finally launch into my career as a full-fledged zoo veterinarian. Got it. So by my, if my math is correct, you did four years of undergrad, two years of post-bac, four years of vet school. Now we're at 10 years, then a postdoc year, that's 11, an internship with wildlife, that's 12, and then a three-year residency. So we're at 15 years 
before you actually get your first job working as a zoo vet. Right. Accurate? Yes. Yep. Yep. It's, it's, you know, I think obviously it's all been worth it. And I'm assuming it was all super interesting and that you enjoyed it all. I think it's just really important for people out there thinking, oh, I want to be a vet. And, and to your point too, that, you know, some of those years maybe wouldn't be necessary if you wanted to simply just go out and work as a vet. But if you have a specialization in mind, like you did, that's going to add time to it, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and so what's your favorite part about working specifically with zoo animals? Is it finally getting to work with elephants or is is it a little more than that? Yeah, um, that's certainly part of it. Um, I do really enjoy working with elephants, but um, it is working with the diversity of animals that we that we do. And so especially being at some place like, you know, I'm really based at the Bronx Zoo. So being here, um, there are species that I didn't even know existed, um, you know, and so it's really fun, um, you know, over the course of a few weeks to be working with, you know, anything, right, frogs, rodents, all different types of birds. Um, And so um, it's, again, it's challenging and and just really stimulating, Mm -hmm. um, but, it can also be exhausting. We, you know, so despite all of this training that I've, I've done, I, I've also gone on to become board certified. So I'm specialized in zoo medicine. I've taken this giant test that I had to study for years in order to be able to pass. And even with all of that, I have to admit that every day, certainly every week, but probably every day, there's something that I look at and I say, I've never seen that before. And, you know, and sometimes no one has, has seen it before. And so, Yes, we'll see that a little bit in dog and cat medicine and in horse and cow medicine, but not to the extent that we do. So we have to become comfortable with not knowing everything and, and being willing to do research to try to help explain a lot of the stuff that you know we may not understand. Right. I mean, it certainly sounds like a job where you would never, there's no chance you could be bored because if you were bored, then it was clear it was probably time for you to stop doing that job. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> what, um, in the time we have left, any advice that you would have or, you know, for aspiring veterinarians or for, you know, the, the skills to develop, but were also the things to look for within yourself to make sure you have if you really, truly want this career? Yeah. So um, certainly you, you've got to have the academics down. So you have to be really committed um, to your studies. And it's definitely, you know, important to be strong in uh, math and science and that kind of thing. Um, you know, a lot of veterinarians do have an affinity, certainly toward animals, which is important, but it's also really good uh, to enjoy working with people as well because yes. it's not it's not just animals that you're working with and so that that's also really important and then um it is a really competitive application process it can be a competitive you know field certainly to be a zoo veterinarian specifically and so you um need to sort of steal yourself for that you're going to get rejected you know at, yeah. at, along this way whether it's rejected to vet school one time or your internship or residency and just be prepared for you know plan b and and how you're going to uh, continue forward toward your goal even though there will be likely some obstacles yeah. I mean, I love that your path was not smooth sailing all the way. I think it's w- far more interesting and certainly a really good one for our listeners to hear because I often find that one of the reasons students choose a path like veterinary medicine or medicine, um, people medicine is that it's a f- 
they see it as a very clear path, right? If I do this, this, and this, then this, this, and this happens. But it isn't necessarily a clear path. Um, and you need to be able to roll with it and and deal because when you get on the other side of it and you're working in this world, it's it's rarely going to be a clear path, right? It's going to, yes. you're going to get road bumps all the time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And making a point to appreciate what you're learning along the way. So you yeah. may not be in your ideal job, or your ideal school or whatever it is, but whatever you're doing, it can be really informative um, and something that you're going to draw upon in your later years. So try to appreciate the moment. Yes, I love it. Great advice. And we're going to end on that note. Thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about how to decode that financial aid award letter. So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, I've been doing this podcast for eight years, and every once in a while, I still jump the gun. Um, But we are going to be talking about something incredibly important for those of you who are awaiting financial aid letters. Maybe you already have them, and you are trying to determine how much exactly you're going to have to pay, um, or maybe even take out some loans. Uh, And joining me for that conversation today is my colleague, Zachary Grease, who is a former financial aid director at Loris College in Iowa. Hi, Zach. How are you? Hi, Hi Beth. Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thanks for joining today. Um, Happy to. Absolutely. All right. So... We talk, obviously, you you and your team on the finance side talks to a lot of people all the time about paying for college 
whatever that looks like, different families, different situations. Not everyone is going to qualify for financial aid, um, but many people will. And um, it would be great if the letters were all formatted exactly the same and we knew exactly what to expect. But I suppose if that was the case, maybe your team wouldn't have as much to do. So I guess we can say, yay. I don't think so, though. I think we'd find other things to do. I think Uh, we would. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's it's definitely a frustration that colleges aren't always as clear as they could be. So what I was hoping we could do today is take our readers through the elements of an offer um, and help them figure out what the individual elements mean, because they won't always be called the same thing. Um, Why don't we, let's start with the first one, um, you know, sort of the cost of attendance versus direct cost. What are those Mm -hmm. differences in those two terms? Will those appear in the financial aid award letter? Yes, really good place to start. And to give some background context uh, to listeners, the Department of Ed, I I listened to a podcast from NASPA, which is the Financial Aid um, National Advocacy Group. And I think there is currently murmurs of Department of Ed taking a more involved approach in financial aid award letter construction mm-hmm. because of exactly what you mentioned. You know, some offer letters have labeled certain elements one way, other offer letters label different elements or present different information. So I think it's a really good topic. But when it comes to the cost, that there's usually one of two ways a school will present that to mm-hmm. the individual recipients. The cost of attendance is a more comprehensive approach to discussing cost. And the cost of attendance includes two sub elements. One would be direct cost, and that would be a cost that a family is going to pay directly to the institution. Mm-hmm. Could be tuition, which is the most common. It could be room and board meal plans, fees. It's its money you're directly giving to the college or the university. The second element of a cost of attendance is what we would call indirect cost. And that would be expenses that a family would likely incur, even though they're not paid directly to the university or the college. So it could be things like airfare, travel expenses, hygiene expenses when perhaps you take your child to Walmart and when they're moving in and you get them new bedding and sheets and some clothing. Yes. <laughs> relatable. And yes. so it's the, college's, it's the college's way when, when they present cost of attendance of trying to show a family that if they build a budget solely around tuition and fees, they might end up short. They want to be thinking about these other expenses associated with that school year. Right. Um, now, where it gets to be tricky is that some schools do present cost of attendance. Other schools only present direct costs. So mm. as a family is looking at award letters to make sure they're comparing apples to apples, it's really wise to look at the values that are being included in the cost and be aware of what they are. And some families may say, we're going to remove the indirect cost from the cost of attendance that we have the same right. number for each of these. And other families may say, we're just going to build our own indirect costs and include that as sort of this estimate. And that way we have something similar for each, each college that way too. But I think in either case, that that's a good place to start and and hopefully helps give families a sense and listeners a sense of the two different ways the school could present cost. 
Well, and I and I like the idea of what you're saying, first of all, is this concept of families kind of creating their own, right? So yes. create a spreadsheet and so that you're comparing apples to apples. Because mm-hmm. if one college is saying this is the direct cost of college and the other one is saying, well, this is the cost of attendance, you might get sucked into the idea that college A, which is only sharing direct cost and college B, which is sharing cost of attendance overall, is cheaper, but it could be that one is actually B could be less expensive than the other one because their estimates are really high and you know, you won't need airfare, right? So there are a lot of different, and so I always do draw on my own personal experiences. And so when my son, when we were looking at all of his options, we went, we looked only at the direct cost and then we had our own estimates because some schools required airfare, other schools, it was a quick drive, right? Yes. Brilliant. And, and I think that's so smart because you're spot on that for some of these colleges, if you have to buy airfare to and from during the holidays, that could be, you know, another $4,000 on top of the cost. Whereas if you're commuting locally a couple hours away, you know, totally different story. So I think that's really smart. Yeah. Well, I learned from the best, so I can't take credit (laughs) for that one myself. All right. So let's talk about financial aid. You know, what are the different terms you're going to see for aid itself um, on these lists or on these letters? Yes, I think that's a a good follow up from the cost. So the, the word financial aid I, I would label it like an umbrella term. It's very comprehensive. And when I was a financial aid director, a lot of families may phrase their request with something like, we, we'd like to know what other financial aid there are. And in reality, I think they meant certain elements of financial aid. So right. hopefully in breaking it apart, you know, it will help give families and listeners some language they can use and also give them some sense of what this will look like. But financial aid is there's four types of assistance included in that umbrella term. You have scholarships, grants, work opportunities, and student loans. Now, we usually in the industry break those apart and say gift aid mm-hmm. is grants and scholarships because it's free. It's a gift right. from somebody. You're not paying it back. And then self-help aid would be money that a student is either going to repay in the form of a loan or that they have to earn via work study. So what I've seen in financial aid offer letters is that some colleges will break apart each element. They'll show scholarships in a separate section, grants in a separate section, work and loans all in separate sections. I've seen other colleges bundle them together where they show gift aid in one section and then self-help aid in another. Um, so so that can be a little bit of a, similarly to the cost, you know, families may want to comb through that more thoroughly and make sure they're looking at the individual elements so that they can pair apples to apples because if you get a grant and it's based on need, a family may say, we don't know if we should count on this all four years because mm-hmm. it's based on our income and our assets. Whereas if they get a scholarship and the college says it's renewable, sort of a different price implication there. So I think that hopefully helps families get a sense of what kind of financial aid they'll see and how, how it will be broken apart. The other thing I've seen, which is not ideal, in my opinion, is where they don't necessarily label it, 
you know, they have like a whole list and at the bottom, you know, it's sort of like cost to you, but they don't factor in the loans and things that you're going to be taking out. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. money you have to pay back. So maybe you're not paying that today, but if you end up taking out $20,000 in loans every year at the end of four years, if your child graduates in four years, that's 80 grand that you now owe that you weren't factoring into what you actually have to pay today. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and you know, with software, you know, love technology, it's done a lot, but I've seen situations where a school may lump financial aid together in a drop-down menu. And mm-hmm. so for a family that just quickly glances over it, they may say, Oh, $30,000 of financial aid. This is great. And they may they move on. If you open the menu and you expand the drop-down, you may then see loans, federal subsidized, unsubsidized plus loan. So I think this is a really good instance to remind families that it really is helpful to go into the details. Yeah. You have to go into the details. I don't, you know, we, uh, we see, we get lots of questions from people who clearly have not gone into the details. So I beg of you, go into the details, please. This is so much money. It's such a big investment. You just have to go into the details. Um, Okay, so we've talked about the different elements of aid. There's gift aid, which is exactly like what it sounds, right? You're not going to pay that back. And then, of course, I like the term self-help aid, even though that's not necessarily what they'll all call it. But basically, that means you're helping yourself. And in some way, shape, or form, you're going to pay for it Mm, (laughs) eventually. What's left after you've looked at, um, you know, the gift aid, the self-help aid, the either direct cost or direct costs or the cost of attendance? What else are, are, should families expect to see on, on these uh, award letters? Yeah, a couple things. Um, you know, I, I think one of the numbers that's left that is going to be really crucial again, but it's in devils in the details, uh, so to speak, is going to be the cost. And again, some colleges, if they're using cost of attendance, may have a cost of attendance based what we would call net price or the price after the assistance. Mm -hmm. Um, Other colleges may not calculate a cost and they may allow you to calculate your cost, which for for those of you looking at the details may be how you approach this anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So expect in some cases for the college to do the math for you, but in that case, just be aware of how they got there, if they're including loans or not including loans. Other colleges may leave that more open-ended. I believe the National Financial Aid Group, uh, it's called NASPA, I believe they recommend colleges do the math based on cost of attendance. I don't know that for certain, but um, if the college then chooses to follow it, you might see that if if not, you know, calculate your own. I think it's wise to calculate your own anyways. Just I, yeah. put it out there. <laughs> I almost kind of like it if they don't, because quite honestly, that forces you to calculate it yourself. It does. Right? And it does. as you were saying, you know, like the colleges, it's important to see how they get there. I just have in my head all of the every math class I ever took in my life. You know, you have to show your work. It's show not work. enough. Yes. Yes. It is not enough to say, here's the, here's the answer. If you can't... Right, exactly. If you can't explain how you got there, then you don't really know the answer because you, right? You can't, you really have no idea, like, oh, I think this is what I'm paying, but I don't really know. So, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so we've got the calculated kind of um, ultimately the net price that you ultimately will pay. Mm -hmm. Um, what, What else is in there? Yeah, so usually a financial aid offer letter will include some additional formalities, if you want to think of them that way, 
Um, most of them will include, because typically a family's second question, once they've digested the financial aid numbers and they've calculated, you know, they've done the math and the legwork, typically the next question is, okay, we have year one Mm -hmm. understood. We, We have our heads wrapped around that how do we start to assume year two, year three, year four? Mm-hmm. What types of assistance is going to be continual and what types of assistance is going to be under evaluation every year based mm-hmm. on our situation? And so to help with that, many colleges will include some kind of a, what we used to call terms and conditions document. And it would just be almost an FAQ setup that helped families understand what they had to do to continue receiving the scholarships from one year to the next. Mm -hmm. What might happen to the scholarship if, for example, the student is on campus and they move off campus, Uh, how, you know, deadlines that are coming up in the future, next steps. Um, So, so it's called terms and conditions. It was for us. I don't know that that's standardized language. It, It might be called something different, but I would say expect some form of supplemental document to help with clarifying questions and Right. Right. And then just for our listeners sake, that could be something like the student must maintain a specific GPA in order to retain a scholarship, right? Something like that. Absolutely. And, and really quickly, as we are getting close to time, and I know there's one other thing we wanted to talk about, um, in general, how much of, do you see financial aid awards fluctuate if the family's financial situation essentially remains the same? They don't win the lottery. Um, someone doesn't lose their job, which are two probably big things that could impact what a financial aid award looked like. Should families anticipate a bait and switch or do generally most colleges are pretty consistent? I I believe most colleges are quite consistent. I've I've not seen any college, you know, I think a lot of individuals, especially in the financial aid office, go mm-hmm. into that field with wanting to be s- stewards and, and um, gate openers, if you will, of the yes. higher education system. They, they want to help bridge gaps in affordability. And so I don't find that most individuals in admissions or financial aid or in college in general are trying to create situations where it's a gotcha, you know, what what we gotcha, you know? Yes. Um, Now you're here. Yeah. Now (laughs) you're here and and you're stuck with us. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I I would say it's good to be cautious, but generally speaking, I think you're okay saying, okay, if our, our affordability situation stays about the same, you know, our student does well in school, they, they live on campus, they, you know, they perform well in their classes the college is not going to be trying to pull any fastballs on them. Okay, great. All right, last thing. Um, they're generally, so what are the next steps? You get this award, you, you know, figure it all out, you decode it for yourselves. Is, is that also going to be part of the award, the school telling you what you need to do next? Yes, in many cases, I think they will start to say, Here, here's where we're headed. Now, generally, I think next steps are going to be once you've assessed the cost of each of the institutions that you as a family are seriously considering, some families may negotiate at that Mm -hmm. point and try to make sure they've optimized the assistance they're getting from the college that they are interested in attending. Other times, it may be a little more formal. You may have to do something to secure a loan. If you're planning to use them, there might be some kind of a deposit where you put some money down to reserve your place. Mm -hmm. But usually, the I would say the biggest hope from the offer letters is that the, the very first next step is that the student has a chance to finally, if they're if they're approaching this with a price-based decision, mm-hmm. that they have the information they need to make the decision. And from there, 
they can work with admissions and financial aid to finalize the details and the college may provide some of that. But I, I think the very first thing I'd be thinking as a recipient of an offer letter is, okay, do I have what I need to feel good about making my choice? Right. Exactly. And then pick up the phone and ask questions if you don't. It is (laughs) It is still amazing to me. Um, I'm on a couple of different Facebook groups of people who do this work for a living and, um, you know, usually on the admission side and they're like, is there a problem if they call the financial aid office? Like, no, there is not a problem. Do it. it. (laughs) No one is going to yank an offer over this. Exactly. Do it. So, all right, Zach, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Yes, it was such a pleasure. Uh, Have a great week and we'll talk to you later. All right. That sounds good. Uh, All right. Really quickly, we're going to take one more break. And when we get back, we're talking about visiting colleges. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back and we're talking about visiting colleges and I'm super excited to welcome my colleague Serena Frasina. Uh, who also happens to be a former admissions officer at Lewis and Clark College in Oregon, to the show today because uh, she has visited a lot of schools and she loves visiting schools. So Serena, so happy to have you here. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. Awesome. Well, so one of the things that I loved when you and I first met was you shared your own college experience, which included when you were looking at colleges, visiting (laughs) A hundred schools, which I love. I loved that. I could never stop talking about it. And um, it kind of blows my mind to imagine a high school senior visiting a hundred colleges. But tell us a little bit about what prompted you to see that many schools. Yeah, well, I am. I couldn't imagine like spending four years someplace that I didn't know a little bit more about and I I hadn't visited. Um, I had lived in the same place my whole life. And so at, you know, 16 or so, I was like, I'm not going to just leave home and like 
moved to a new strange place that I've never seen. So um, my mom and I spent, uh, you know, it was over a period of time. We did some spring break visits. Um, California students have this fun February week-long break. Um, so we did February breaks, spring breaks, and then we spent a summer visiting friends and family all over the country. We made it up to Canada. Um, there was one particularly long, like three week cross country trip um, that ended in, uh, well, ended at home obviously, but <laughs> ended on the West Coast and we drove down the entire West Coast from BC to Southern California. And we like, we went on tours at almost every single official campus tours on almost all of those hundred or so campuses. So it was, um, I apologize, I've got a dog here now. Um, it was a ton of fun. I had a whole rating system. I don't remember it. Um, it was a great time. So first question for you is, did the school you wound up at, was that a school you visited? Yes. It okay. was one of my first visits. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, and along the way, so would you say that the average person needs to see as many schools as you saw? No. <laughs> and I'd like to clarify, I applied to nine schools. So I love I it. Like, you know, a 30 school applicant. Um, I, I definitely don't. I mean, I, I wouldn't not recommend 100 schools. Like, it's fun. If you like, if you want to spend your time doing that, go for it. Uh, but you absolutely do not need to visit 100 schools. And you don't even need to visit all the schools that you apply to realistically. Right. So it's interesting to me that the one you wound up at was one of the first schools that you visited. Any similarities be amongst the nine that you applied to? Were they early visits? Or were they kind of scattered throughout? That's a good question. They were fairly scattered throughout. Um, yeah, a good mix. Um, I think it really came down to what I experienced on those visits. Um, and like schools didn't make it on that list of nine because I didn't like my visit on their campus. And and the one thing I I, I don't love about campus visits is that they are superficial to some degree. Yeah. I mean, like it's not, you know, you're, you're not doing the deep dive research necessarily on your campus visit, but that gut feeling to me is really important in the process. And so I think that's where you get like that gut feeling on a campus visit. And I think that's why a lot of them kind of stayed on my list. Got it. Because it was a gut reaction positively or negative. Well, yeah. stayed on your list positively, right? Never <laughs> made it to the list is a negative reaction. And I just like how you guys kind of turned it into a, hey, well, this is something that is really important to me that I know I feel really comfortable about where I wind up for the next four years. So that just became your vacation um, anytime you had a chance to do it. So, um, and immediately what I thought is this is someone who can help families figure out how to, how to wade through the options and how to maximize their visits. So with that in mind, for you, um, what is what are the essential elements of a visit? If you if you don't do these things, then you're not really visiting. Or these things are essential to to really saying yes, I visited and looked at this school. Yeah, I think I mean it, it really depends on the student, um, but I, I think some of the key components are going on the official campus tour whenever you possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Yes, you get some kind of marketed information um, that the campus tour guide is trained, but 
you know, you want a trained person. You want somebody who knows how to show you all the important pieces. So I, I think those campus tours, um, the official tours are important. Um, I think the kind of lesser known or, or something that maybe you wouldn't think to do Um I definitely think spending some time in the surrounding area, if you can, going to a restaurant and, you know, exploring where you would get off campus, especially in a rural area. Like, what can you get to easily? Mm-hmm. Um, I like what I call the coffee shop eavesdrop, a little time <laughs> like in a coffee shop or a dining hall on campus and listen to the conversations around you. Are those like, is that what you would want to spend your next four years hearing and, and like talking about. Um, I think for some students seeing facilities, whether that's athletic or research facilities, like if you know you want to be doing research on a college campus and that's how you want to spend your college experience, try to get in to see those facilities. And I find, you know, faculty, students are really excited to show off their work. Um, so that can be an email to the admissions office or an email to a professor that you've, you you're interested in working with potentially. Um, I think for some students, the library is really important to see. You're going to spend a lot of time in that library. Um, I also think asking the tour guide or or the people that you meet on campus, like where is your favorite place that perhaps the tour doesn't go? Um, And that can be on and off campus. Like where do you spend your time um, when you're not in class? Um, I think residence halls can be important. They can also be tricky. Like, you don't want to go through residence halls and interrupt student like that's their homes. So it's a little weird, um, but I, I think when that's offered, or if you have a friend um, that's going to the school, definitely take advantage of popping in and seeing a room um, if that's an option. Yeah, yeah, I love all of those ideas, and um, you know, I think the tour is important. I, I'm as a former admissions officer, I'm super partial always to the info session possibly because I used to lead those. So I'm like, well, of course those are important. Um, What I like about those is that sometimes, not always though, interestingly enough, but sometimes I find that's where you can get some really good applying information. Um, You know, I attended a couple, I did a bunch before my son was looking at colleges, but it certainly took on new meaning when I was going with my son. And, um, you know, I was almost exclusively focused on, I don't know what he was paying attention to, but I was paying attention to what they say about, you know, do you need to be in the early action pool? Are there priority deadlines? Um, is there something that they like to see in if there's an additional essay required that students write about in that essay? You know, like if it's an admissions officer leading it, I'm, I was usually getting some really good advice from that perspective. But it isn't always led by an admissions officer. And I certainly found that unlike the tour, which is a pretty reliable, you know what you're going to get with the tour, the info session varied from school to school for me. Yeah, definitely. I think they're absolutely helpful. And I would totally agree if you can make them definitely. Um, I think the info session is the easiest thing to do, like virtually or off campus. Yes. If, if you need to miss something, like you can usually figure out a way to get that information other, you know, through other avenues. But if you can, definitely info session. And see, actually, that's really great advice. And I've never entirely thought about it that way. But if you, one of the challenges of seeing a lot of schools, and you could probably speak to this better than I could, is just how many visits can you really do in one day? And if you're trying to do both a tour and an info session, and then do some of those other things that you're mentioning, 
really it's one school a day. But if you could do the info session online and then do a tour and a couple of other things, in theory, you might actually fit two schools in in one day. What, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And did you ever fit more than two schools into one day? Yeah, definitely. Uh, again, it depends on the area. If you are in your neck of the woods, a, a one school a day visit, I think is pretty much max unless you're yes. waiting, next to the school and then like hitting the, the second school as late as possible. Yes. Um, I think if you're in my area in Portland, you realistically can can hit two. Um, if you're strategic and fueled up on good Portland coffee, you might be able to hit three schools. Um, I notice a lot of, of schools that are in, um, you know, that kind of work together, peer schools, sometimes they will time their visits. So it is possible mm-hmm. um, to, you know, eat lunch on the way or between schools and, and do a morning visit and an afternoon visit. Um, I find if you're doing that, that's not sustainable. It's really, really exhausting. Um, on, on most campus tours, you are walking miles. I mean, mm-hmm. in many places, if, if you're not doing a shuttle tour, which I, I think we did of the hundred or so visits, maybe two tours that were on shuttle. Wow. Okay. Then we're walking tours. So, um, and that's kind of, I'm now bird walking here. Um, but you know, two visits is, is a lot. So I'd say, you know, aim for one, maybe a few places you can hit those two visits. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's really good advice because I also think if you're not being thoughtful in the visits and you're not doing some of those additional things, right, you're not going to get as much out of it. And then you've spent all this money and time to kind of come away saying, oh, I like the tour. I don't really remember much more. Um <laughs> And so really quickly, because there's a few things I want to cover here, but um, I'm assuming you must have taken notes when you were doing all of those visits. I see that as essential. Any advice for you on how to keep everything organized so that it doesn't all bleed together? Yeah, I definitely recommend picking up brochures, even if they're mailed home, if they have paper on the table. And I'm a paper person, so this might depend on who you are, but I would grab a brochure just you know, it has a few pictures, it has the information, it's kind of there in front of me. Sometimes I would write my notes on the brochure. So it was like all there in a nice little packet. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely take, you know, at this point, you can do it on your phone. That wasn't really an option on my flip phone. Um, but you can, you know, type your notes on a phone. Um, and I would just say, you know, point out anything to jog your memory. Um, I had some weird like, oh, remember, like tying your shoe in this weird place, like it, things that would just help me remember, like I spilled my coffee here. Um, but take notes um, and on paper or, or um, on your phone. And if you have a way to sort of rate your visit, um, I think that can be helpful. And, and you might have a few categories like, you know, liked these things, didn't like these things, um, but just, you know, anything to help you remember your experience there and that feeling you got, like, what did you feel while you were there? Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of speaks to the gut reaction you were talking about. Right. And it's the analogy I always make is, you know, you're dating is someone could look really great on paper and then you meet them and no, <laughs> and you, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty immediate, like, nope, this is definitely not someone for me, even if they're great on paper. And it can be that way with a college. And it also can be a wow, ideally, they also meet your primary criteria, or you wouldn't visit. But um, sometimes there's no explaining it why something really appeals and something really doesn't. Um, But the visits can be helpful in that way. 
Um, really quickly, any tips for families on actually planning the visits? Where do you go to, to start that process? There is usually a page on the admissions website, um, and it usually has a calendar. I, I think they come so naturally to me now, but they can be a little bit confusing. So if you're ever really into problems, just email the admissions office, or if you have a good relationship with your territory counselor um, from the school, reach out to them. Um, I would formally schedule the visit in advance. I think there are still some COVID restrictions in place, or at least the remnants of COVID restrictions. So sometimes you can't do a walk-in visit. Um, so pre-planning is really helpful. And yeah. mapping distances between places and anticipating traffic so that you're not late to your, to your visit. Right. And also understanding where you're going to park. That was That's a big one if you're driving. Um, but I would could second the, you know, anticipating traffic. I was always amazed when I worked in admissions at the number of families who would come walking in, like at the time that the info session started, at the time you didn't really register in advance, but we had a card that we wanted people to fill out. And then we had to walk to the place where we were doing the info session and you know, you just, it's not ideal if you're showing up exactly at the time it's supposed to start, because even if we knew it was going to start five minutes later, your being delayed could either delay everything or you would get left behind and have to kind of find your way and to catch up. So great advice. Um, Serena, thank you so much for joining today and sharing your personal experience. I, again, I love it. And um, I don't know anyone who has kind of taken that part of their college search so seriously. And I just think it's great. So thanks for joining today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Beth. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks to Serena and all of my guests today. Next week, Ian is hosting uh, and he's going to be talking about transferring. We have a, had a few segments throughout the year about transferring, but that segment is going to be on the nuts and bolts of it. How do you do it? Um, we're also going to be talking about education tax breaks, which it's tax time. So it's that time of year. And we're going to be doing a listener Q&A, one of our regular segments. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, please don't forget, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get, the easier it is for others to find us. Remember, it's getting in a college coach conversation. We love those five-star reviews. Um, if you have questions, we answer them in those listener Q&A segments. So send them to us. Um, you can send them to us at Facebook. Instagram or at, at collegecoachbh, or you can send good old fashioned email, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Um, and last thing I wanted to mention is just if you're curious if we've covered a topic of interest before, we blog about every single podcast that we do. That's a lot of blogs about our podcasts. Um, but you can go to our blog um, at getintocollege.com, blog.getintocollege.com, and search there. Um, for whatever topic is of interest, and you can find the different segments we've done on that topic and then go listen to them. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.